Welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this episode, I sit down with the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers Government Affairs team, Joel Wood, Joel Cockrood, and Blair Bartlett. I get their take on Build Back Better's chances of passing, midterm elections, the latest threats and opportunities for the employer-sponsored insurance market, and more. Give it a listen. So thank you guys. I'm so excited to be here with the Council's Government Affairs team, Joel Wood, Joel Cockrood, and Blair Bartlett. How are you guys doing? We're, you know, Joel and I are really cute today. We both have our little blue shirts on and our council pack red ties on. And we're all just happy, happy February, gearing up for our ledge summit. I'm wearing black, like my soul, like my coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are here on the cusp of ledge summit, and we thought it would be a great idea to sort of uh, get your thoughts on a few different topics today. We'll start off with the recent Supreme Court news, um, the retirement of Justice Breyer coming up and potential new justice. Um, love to hear what you guys think about how that how that will all go down. I think the biggest issue for us is the calendar in the Senate. And to get anything done in the United States Senate, it takes a lot of time. You need 60 votes to really move forward on almost anything other than a reconciliation bill. And if you look at what the agenda is before Chuck Schumer, this is going to be very difficult to squeeze in while they're trying to finish the president's agenda on Build Back Better. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute, but I think that we see some light at the end of the tunnel on that. They've got to get federal funding done. We're going to, it's a little over two weeks, we run out of federal funding. Uh, and we've got this China jobs competition bill that's dangling over them that they also have to get done. And they want to get it all done by the end of March. And that's just not possible. So, you know, and obviously the political outlook for Democrats, it's an uphill battle. They've got to have some deliverables on the ground. They've got, they are very focused on kitchen table issues. And it's very difficult to see how a uh, Supreme Court nomination fits into the agenda. That said, I mean, it does energize the base. The Biden administration really needs to give the base something. They are failing on Build Back Better. They're failing on a lot of fronts. And the base is not enthusiastic. His poll numbers are really, really low. Democrats are going into a tough midterm election with 33% is the lowest number I've heard for the president's approval rating. So this is an opportunity to energize the base. And it's going to put uh, Supreme Court and court-based issues front and center, when, it, when you think about affirmative action, when you think about Roe v. Wade, everything that's before uh, the American people and the, before the courts, this could help energize the base. So there is a silver lining there, but it's really difficult to see how they get everything done that they need to get done. I'm actually going to sound a happy note and basically agree with everything that Joel Kay just said. Um, I, you know, we're, we're losing a liberal Supreme Court justice who's going to be replaced with a moderate to liberal Supreme Court justice. I don't think that this is going to be um, you know, top of mind for voters in the fall. I think it does give the administration a little bit of a bump with the base right now. But you're right, the polling numbers are absolutely abysmal. Um, uh, Biden started off January 21 with a 57% approval rating. That's flipped to a 57% disapproval rating. If you look at the overall numbers, 32, 33% in Georgia, a poll last week showed where, you know, you've got uh, Raphael Warnock. Uh, running for re-election, Herschel Walker and others that are running against him uh, and polling up. Uh, But the strong disapproval rate uh, was over 50%. Very scary numbers for the administration. Different members of the administration taking their turn in the barrel right now. uh, This week it's uh, HHS Secretary Becerra. Uh, We've been seeing the vice president taking her turn in the barrel, Ron Klain, the chief of staff. it's, here's the biggest thing. First of all, when politically, you first beat the opposition in their heads, and then you beat them at the ballot box. 
And um, in 2010, when Republicans captured 66 seats and recaptured the House of Representatives, there were a total of 17 Democratic retirements that year. In 2022, right now we are at 29 Democratic uh, retirements and counting. Now, there are fewer seats. I mean, there's not going to be 66 seats that Republicans could pick up. Fewer seats that are really in the middle. Uh, but we're watching them very closely, and we think, I, you know, uh, as a Republican, I'm pretty bullish. Uh, the Senate, a little less so. But, Sandy, we've gone far afield from your first question about the Supreme Court. Uh, Blair, anything to add? No, I agree. I, I don't think... You know, the, the lead pick for the president is controversial at all. It's not going to be like a Kavanaugh or Amy Comey Barrett. It's the hardest thing is going to be the Senate schedule. That's just going to that's going to delay everything. OK, before we leave the courts, we've recently seen two um, vaccination related opinions come down. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what these mean for employers. Well, my, mine are really quick, which is the Supreme Court threw it out and the Biden administration is not challenging uh, the mandate on uh, large employers. Uh, so I think you're going to continue to see it um, on an employer by employer, region by region, uh, industry sector by industry sector um, uh, going forward. There is an interesting dynamic happening, I think, in, like in general with politics and the, the relationship between business and politics, which is where you're seeing businesses start to take the lead where government cannot, where government is failing. We're seeing it with every issue from the minimum wage increase to the vaccines. And I think this is an issue where we're starting to see business leaders step up and take the lead on issues that government is failing to take the lead on. And I think we will continue to see that for quite some time. I mean, this is how the founding fathers set up our government, right? There's too much federal government, government overreach. The Supreme Court pulls it back, and that's what happened in this instance. Yeah, it is also fascinating with all the misinformation and what's happening with the social media platforms spreading misinformation. There's increasingly lack of trust uh, between from, from uh, or trust of government leaders, of politicians, of the media. There's no one, no one trusts faith-based leaders anymore. The, the number one trusted messenger in the United States right now is the corporate CEO, is the leadership of companies, is business. Uh, so we are seeing business start to step up in a way that they've never stepped up before. Okay, let's stick with Congress. Uh, build Back Butter, is, is anything going to come of that? And if so, are there any issues um, of note for our members? Yeah, I'm actually pretty bullish on this. I think that they, we are, they are going to get something done. The big question, as we talked about before, is the, 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 the schedule in the Senate and how they can shoehorn something in there. But we do know that Senator, it all, it's all about uh, you know, Senator Manchin, uh, Manchin and Cinema. But Manchin right now is talking with Clyburn, uh, the, the majority whip in the House, and Clyburn's responsible for getting a lot of things done through the House. Manchin's talking to Speaker Pelosi, and it sounds increasingly like it's going to have some kind of means-tested child tax credit in there. We, there's strong support for a lot of the ACA provisions that are in there, including the prescription drug measures. Uh, and there's even going to be some climate measures that Manchin supports that's likely to get in there. It's a far cry from the $1.5 trillion that he originally said he would support as a top-line spending number, and a further cry from the $3 trillion that some of the progressives wanted. Um, but I, I am optimistic that they get something done. Well, I, and I would say I am pessimistic that they get something done because I think that they're going to get something done. I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't view that as, <laughs> as a good thing. There's not much in this bill that I like, and I, nor, nor that I think many of our member firms are going to like. On the other hand, there's really nothing that is aimed at them. Uh, I, I think probably the closest thing in, in the BBB uh, framework uh, that impacts us on the employer-sponsored um, health insurance coverage is the expansion of the uh, 
uh, subsidies in the ACA exchanges. It was a part of the American Rescue Plan last year, and they expire at the end of this year. Uh, we do, on balance, like a lot of the prescription drug reforms, the, the Medicare negotiation, some of those, as long as they those negotiated prices apply to commercial plans, which is a little bit in doubt. Um, I, I do share your sentiment that most people think, well, Manchin killed it and BBB is dead and that's it. Uh, that may be the case, but I still believe that they're, you know, the, the, that the progressives and the administration feel that they've got to get something across the finish line. Uh, it will be much scaled back. Progressives won't love it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then we just have to worry about what are those tax provisions going to look like. Some there, And we've got different member firms that are impacted differently, whether it's through the corporate rate for C corporations, whether it's through uh, uh, provisions that would uh, extend the ACA 3.8% uh, uh, surcharge uh, on employer plans, on ERISA plans, uh, uh, for, for pass-through or, or organizations. Um, and then a, a number of other things that were very troubling that we had to sort of play whack-a-mole last fall, and we could be right back uh, into that again. About, I think it was maybe before EBLF, the three of us, you know, did kind of a message for everyone at EBLF, kind of talking them through the Build Back Better. And I think, Joel Wood, you asked me, like, how much do you think it's actually going to be? And I said a trillion. And you kind of rolled, rolled your eyes and laughed at me, like, it's going to be so much more than that. And we're standing at kind of a trillion, you know, I don't a remember that, Blair. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> so, Liar. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I don't know if trillion's the, the lucky number, but if, if I was advising the president, I would say, look, like, what is the reality of what we can get done? And how do we spin that so it's our idea? And how is it going to be better for the economy and better for the average person? Because right now, it's still, we're still talking about ideas that are hard for for everyone to grasp that it works for them and that it is worth the cost. I've heard over and over from Democrats that they can they have spent how many election cycles campaigning on lower prescription drug costs and they view this as their last opportunity to do yeah. that and to exactly what you said they how make they make it people's about lower drug costs. that's what they're trying to do. They make it about lower drug costs and not about saving the planet. Right. <laughs> May I just note uh, Joel is so sick of hearing me say this but if time were money and one second was one dollar, it would take you 11 days to become a millionaire. It would take you 37.2 years to become a billionaire. If time were money, it would take you 37,200 years to become a trillionaire. So it's, yeah, only a trillion, Blair? Yeah. <laughs> I never heard that anecdote being shared when Republicans were passing their reconciliation bill a couple years ago. It's really interesting. Yeah, well, I will note. So I did have dinner with Senator Manchin a couple months ago. Now it was in like late November, and he said then what he's saying now, which we said he said several months ago, which is that he has to be able to sell this bill to his constituents in West Virginia. West Virginia voted for Donald Trump with over seventy percent, so he's been very consistent. I need to be able to sell this bill. Is this a child poverty bill? Is this a health care bill? Is this an environmental bill? All of which he supports, but he needs to figure out how can he package this and how can he sell it. And it was very difficult for him to sell the original build back better legislation that he was looking at. And I feel like what, he, what he's going to get to now is going to be much easier for him to sell. Not to mention, it's the president isn't really, he hasn't been doing like the big road show that previous presidents have done. Right, and there's well, a lot of frustration. I mean, he can't get Democrats anybody to show up. Been. When he went to Georgia on the voting rights stuff, Stacey Abrams had a scheduling conflict. When he went to Pittsburgh last week, 
the front runner for the Democratic nomination for the Senate seat, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, he had a scheduling conflict. I mean, so doing yeah. a roadshow, taking that show to West Virginia as he attempted to send Kamala there once, and, and then Bernie running op-ed pieces in the Charles. I mean, run by, you, yeah. you said it, Joel. It won West Virginia by over 40%. I'm not sure Manchin ever gets there, given the treatment he's gotten from uh, many of his Democratic colleagues. Yeah. I think he gets there. All right. <laughs> Let's stick with politics. You waited a little bit into the elections, midterm elections, before. Um, Love to hear your thoughts on any key races that we should be paying attention to. Well, um, we've all got our list and our, our priority candidates. Um, I think the most interesting stuff is happening in the Senate right now. And whereas I feel very confident that Republicans are going to retake the House of Representatives, and I think even Joel hears that in all the little liberal seances he attends on your behalf. But um, the Senate races are very much up in the air. And, I, you know, I'm concerned about losing a, a terrific senator like uh, uh, Rob Portman in Ohio, where it's very unclear and what the Trump factor is going to be in that, where you've got J.D. Vance, you've got Josh Mandel, you've got James Timken, where you've got uh, very unclear uh, circumstances in Pennsylvania to succeed. Pat Toomey, where you've Dr. Oz is, is uh, landed with a big thud uh, so far. The the McCormick Spice uh, billionaire is is sort of coming up, but you've got other candidates. Very unclear what role Trump will play there. Uh, same could be said uh, for Republican prospects in in Arizona against Mike Kelly. Uh, hard to identify. Got a couple of self funders there. Uh, Nevada the Republicans struck out in getting Chris Sununu to run against Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Um, I've seen years, like 1980, 1994, where a lot of accidental candidates woke up and were uh, senators and, and, uh, and congresspeople. So it may be that the overarching public sentiment right now, if, if Biden doesn't get these numbers back up, um, is, it will propel Republican control of the Senate. But right now, it's very murky. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think Democrats feel a little conflicted on this. I would focus, when you ask about races, I would focus on a lot of the Senate races, but then collectively the House redistricting and how that benefits or hurts Democrats and Republicans. On the Senate races, I feel like Democrats are really conflicted in that they want to continue to talk about kitchen table issues uh, because that's that's where the votes are, right? It's still all about the suburbs. Uh, but on one hand, they're not really delivering on a lot of those kitchen table issues for all kinds of reasons, so that's difficult. But at their core, from the conversations that I'm having with staffers and members, they're really fearful about the future of democracy. And that January 6th really did change everything. So while we are, Joel well, just outlined uh, the race in the Senate, down the, minutes the question, is, the question is, is who spreads the biggest lie the furthest? Is that how are we going to get the, our next Republican senator? Uh, or, but now those aren't kitchen table issues. But Democrats really do feel like that's what's on the line. So how, they really need to thread the needle. And that's why they feel even more like, like they really have, got, have to deliver if, so if, they can show that any, government, if, that Democratic government actually does work. Because very much on the line is the rule of law and the future of democracy as we know it. We are looking at, well, I don't need to go into the voting rights stuff, but it's, they are very conflicted. On the Senate, on the, on the House side, going into this, we all knew it was going to be an uphill battle, just historically, for, for the party in power, for Democrats in the midterm elections. We are starting to see a lot of silver linings pop up. As, as the redistricting lines are becoming more clear and being solidified, there are more districts now, new districts, that voted for Biden than voted for Trump. That's a good thing for Democrats. Now, Trump, Biden's underwater. They feel like if they really need, if they're going to win, they need to increase the president's approval rating by about five points. 
and then they're really in the game, and they think that they have time to do that. Uh, and if you look at some of these, if you go district by district by district, and you look at the candidates, and they're very, they're very confident about their recruiting efforts, they feel like uh, Kevin McCarthy's measuring the drapes a little too soon. I, so, I mean, I would say, ahead, if, you look, if you look at the House, you need to look at places like Ohio and New York where the lines aren't really final yet. Um, and so it just, it lags on those, you know, on those candidates that, that want to run. And if, if Speaker Pelosi could focus and get bills passed, knowing that they may not, you know, knowing that the Senate won't, won't even consider them, she would give those members that are running in tough districts, running in districts where Trump won or almost won, you know, to give them kind of messaging bills to say, like, as your member of Congress, I was able to get this bill past the House. Like that, she she could do that and help those members and get I, things I, moving. I, too late. Um, all those members that walked the plank for her, uh, just like Marjorie Margolis Mesvinsky did in 1994 for Bill Clinton, and they were waving goodbye, Margie, um, uh, on the on the way out as she was uh, casting her vote. Everybody that voted for what was really a 4.5 trillion dollar build back better plan in the house of representatives because they were doing all kinds of budgetary tricks like Mm -hmm. extending the child tax credits for only two years for example uh but yet having the taxes for 10 years um they've already cast those votes and then they 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 weren't able they they thought they had a mandate uh when uh they had to have control of the house of representatives by four votes and zero votes to spare in the senate so um, I think that ship has sailed. I think marginally some things my, it, it, things can't get worse for them, uh, but but I, I think that uh, you know the, the fix is pretty much in uh, with respect to the House. The Senate is just up more up in the air. And yes, you're right. Future democracy at stake. Yeah, magnetometers. First thing that's going to happen when Kevin McCarthy is sworn in as Speaker is that the magnetometers are going to leave the House floor. We don't have them on the Senate side. I don't think anybody thinks that Susan Collins is going to pistol whip Chuck Schumer, uh, as apparently every Democrat thinks that a Republicans are in the House of Representatives. But the magnetometer is going to go, and that is the first, I think, major demonstration of how trust has just gone out the door in this incredibly uh, terrible environment. And don't even get me started on proxy voting, how the members don't even see one another, interact with one another, know one another, get friends with one another, and work together. Yeah, it does. It does not help at all. Not having committee meetings, not seeing members in the cafeteria. Other than it's that, we are all simpaticos, Sandy. <laughs> How does that sound? They even dressed alike today. <laughs> okay, so so this is a very random question I'm going to ask you guys, and and maybe it, it shows my ignorance a little bit, but it seems from sort of the non-political insider point of view that you have a lot more candidates running who have zero political science background. Um, at all or any sort of any sort of experience like that does that is that just is that real do you see more of that or is that just those are the people that make the headlines yeah uh D's did incredibly well in 2018 in running candidates that were uh, you know not the next guy in line they ran a lot of uh, women candidates a lot of veterans uh, and Republicans took that exact playbook and did exactly the same thing to them in 2020. Not a single Republican incumbent in the House of Representatives lost re-election. And a lot of people who are new and fresh, and that's not all a bad thing. No, because, and, and, and also, you know, you, you see, you're seeing now a lot of retirements because it just, you know, 
you're getting people elected that may have that experience, that have that political experience, or, you know, were Hill staffers or worked in the state Senate, and then they come up here and it's not how it, how they thought it was. And so you've got to get someone fresh who, who isn't jaded. Yeah, that's right. I can say the DCCC has been part, ex, really focused more so than before because of lessons learned that on candidate recruitment and solid candidates. And I don't, I don't think that that's a bad thing for our industry to have more, more, more real Americans, more business leaders. It's not bad to have professional politicians either yeah, yeah, because you the, want to be effective. The but flip you want to get side of this, that knows, and knows we're, we're all in agreement on this, but the flip side on it is that you know, the more inexperienced candidates that we see running the United States Congress, the more people like us get to call the shots and staffers. <laughs> right. uh, because you don't have, you do want experience. You do want the John Dingles of the world who served in the Congress for 50 years and browbeat 10,000 witnesses before his committee and knew the ins and outs of everything that was there. Uh, there's something to be said for that, though that's not going to be a popular sentiment with most of America. All right. We're going to move on to employer as sponsored insurance, um, one of our top issues. Couple things here. One, you know, we have always over the years heard about the threat of the single payer option, public option. Some years you hear more about it than others. Anything newsworthy on this front that you guys are working on that you're seeing? Yeah, the biggest newsworthy issue, and I don't know how much how newsworthy this is anymore, but no one really talks about it anymore, which is the uh, death of the public option at the federal level. You know, but one year ago, it was, a, it was the biggest issue on the presidential campaign trail. We had proposals from completely eviscerating the employer-sponsored insurance market for, for a government program all the way down to Joe Biden's position, which was a public option for those who want it. Uh, neither of those exist anymore. They're not part of the Build Back Better plan, uh, and that's for all kinds of reasons. And we, uh, you know, on one hand, we were just a voice in the choir on this alongside Big Pharma, all the carriers, large employer groups. But on the other hand, we were a founding member of the biggest organization, the biggest coalition to, to fight this. Uh, so we were we, we were players in this, and it's, it's, it's not on the table anymore, but it has, it has just evolved. Uh, I don't think it's going away forever. We are now seeing this going on at the state level. We, you know, we saw a proposal in Colorado several years ago that that died at the at the ballot on a referendum. Uh, the latest issues, the latest iterations are in California. That recently died, which is great. Uh, there's still well, that's breaking, that's breaking news that they're pulling that. But the, you right. know, the California's law requires two thirds majorities in both the House and Senate and a referendum. And even with the supermajorities there, they couldn't get that over. I guess the, the biggest remaining concern that we've had has been New York, though we've not been hearing from Governor Hochul um, or any of the other candidates uh, trying to move something massively in this election year. Yeah, and I think they're waiting to see where the labor unions play out on that one. Um, but I think you see a quiet movement um, within the federal government, within the regulators, kind of moving toward more universal coverage versus single payer. You know, what are the tools that we already have at our disposal that can make it easier for people to sign up for, you know, to sign up for healthcare in the marketplace? You're Definitely. seeing, you know, every year you're seeing larger and lar larger numbers. Um, and so, you know, what, you know, what movements can be done there without legislation? Yeah, I was just gonna say the same thing. It's all about, for Democrats, it's all about access, quality, affordability. So they couldn't do it through a government program, so they're doing it through other means. In fact, part of the Build Back Better plan is not a public option, but the alternative is they are just subsidizing people to go buy the insurance on the, on the private market, and they're increasing those subsidies. Um, so it's just a roundabout way of, at the end of the day, they just want everyone to have access to Every time to they increase those subsidies, you increase the cost shift to private employers. You don't do anything to bend the health care cost curve. So that's why I'm 
hoping that the provisions to expand the eligibility for the subsidies and the exchanges just dies. On the flip side, the more the individual market erodes, the more the commercial markets pay the price. So if we can keep stability in the individual markets, we are for that. And that is what we look forward to spending a lot of time with our benefits executives coming up next week discussing what are the realistic things that we can do. And most of these are pretty wonky. You know, they're reinsurance pools, residual market tools, and individual states that have had some success with them. Um, but they're not sexy. Uh, but uh, Joel's right. The, the, the lack of any substantial proposal to go after a public option, which we hate, um, is one of the most remarkable and unreported successes for our industry sector in the last year. Just uh, considering where the candidates were, considering that unity document, uh, after the Democratic convention between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and, and what kind of impact that would have had on private insurance. That was Joel Wood, Joel Coprud, and Blair Bartlett, the government affairs team for the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Tune in next time at leadersedge.com or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.